Today is uh, uh, today is July thirteenth, and um, two thousand and fifteen, and on July seventh, nineteen seventy seven, I flew to Portland, Oregon, and then I took a long bus ride up to um, Toledo, Washington, to be on a fourteen day mindfulness retreat. It was my first real residential retreat. It was 14 days. And I didn't know anybody at all. I didn't have really a clarity of what I was going to be doing there. But my husband had said, this is really good, so you should do it. So there I was. And uh, my only experience with uh, mindfulness meditation before that had been... uh, 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 day and a half, a Friday night to a Sunday afternoon uh, at someone's house in the South Bay, somewhere near San Jose, uh, that my husband had driven me down there on a Friday afternoon. Again, this is great, so you're going to love it. And dropped me off there two uh, two months before. And uh, he said, I'll be back Sunday. And I, <laughs> and I spent, I spent two, I spent, the nearly 48 hours, miserably uncomfortable. I had a really hard time. Uh, there were probably 15 or 20, probably 20 people there. We were sitting in what was surely a garage repurposed for uh, as a meditation hall. It was very hot. We slept in, on mattresses on the floor in two bedrooms, one mattress next to the other everybody dressing and undressing in the communal space. And I was uh, way older and less hip than everybody else, and I wasn't so comfortable about that. Mostly I had a terrible headache because no one had told me there wasn't going to be any coffee. And uh, I had just a terrible caffeine withdrawal headache. And I didn't understand the instructions very well, and I couldn't figure out what I was doing there. And I spent most of the weekend thinking, when he gets here, I'm really going to tell him that this, you know, what was he thinking? And this is, I'm so poorly prepared. And yeah, really, I'm practicing what I was going to say. Well, guess what, or whatever. And two months later, I was on a plane going to a 14-day meditation retreat in Toledo, Washington. And I have uh, I have two clues about what what might have caused me, given that experience, to be going up for 14 days. And one of them is a photograph. I have it framed in my bedroom, actually, a little photograph of myself and the teacher on that retreat and the 19 or 20 other people all sitting like a little graduation photo. And here I am at the end of the first row. And I'm smiling, so I must have, in retrospect, remembered, you know, when you remember things, you remember the worst, and because that was the most frightening part of anything, and you tend not to remember the good parts, and I'm smiling, so that's actually an interesting clue. Uh, and the other thing that I think about was I did my walking meditation in that place in their living room. It was a private house that had a living room. It had a mantelpiece over a fireplace in the living room, and I did my walking meditation back and forth in front of that fireplace. And on the fire, on the mantelpiece, 
there was one of those polished burls that you buy in Redwood State Parks that they're, they're Redwood burls, and uh, they usually have some uh, lovely expression carved into them that says something like Sisters of Friends Forever or something like that. <laughs> and they had been on this particular Redwood burl, it had said, uh, Life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And retrospectively, I think, on some level, I thought to myself, you know, if that's what they're teaching here, that's maybe what I want to do. I really want to start tonight with what Sally was talking so beautifully about last night, that really, kind is like a humble word. Usually when you say about somebody, they're really kind. It's like a lukewarm word, you know, say they're fantastic, or they're gorgeous, or they're brilliant. You know, kind. It's a, it's a sort of a soft word. I think it's the most important word of all. Of course, she mentioned, and I think someone even before, that when people ask the Dalai Lama if uh, Buddhism is a religion, he says, of course, and what kind of, what, what is your religion? And he said, well, my religion is kindness. Um, it's such a, um, it's such a profound kind of a, um, a word. Um, from time to time, you know, I've, I've been with the same partner now for way more than 60 years. And sometimes you run out of things I suppose to say to each other. <laughs> so every once in a, every once in a while, just to make conversation, he'll say, so, so, what do you think from all those years of meditating and teaching and thinking and studying and training groups, uh, how have you changed? So it's a kind of a silly thing because he's been living with me the whole time. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I like to think it shows in some way. But, you know, it's just conversation. And, but he'll always say, how have you changed? And I will say, I became kind. And he'll say... You were always kind. And then I'll say, well, maybe, but I became kinder. And that's really true. I became kinder the more uh, awake I was to the pain I could possibly cause by doing X or Y in any situation, by the pain of a fast retort or a glib answer, or the pain of not remembering to do something that I'd said I would do of how easy it is to cause pain and how much suffering there is in life for everyone. Sometimes we think, you know, those people, they don't suffer. You read all the, the celebrity magazines and everybody looks beautiful and fabulous, and smiling, and they don't say Everybody suffers. Everybody suffers because desire is endless. And whatever we have, there's always, a, if I only had that, then I'd really be happy. more and more that I saw how much the habits of the mind, my habits of my mind, and everybody's habits of their mind, make their situation worse. I think to myself, uh, yesterday I said at one point when we were together, I said, you know, it's going to turn out that all the folksy things that grandmothers said to us when we were young, don't cry over spilt milk, a stitch in time, all of those things, uh, are going to turn out to be fundamental Buddha Dharma, or fundamental wisdom of the world. 
Our grandmothers also say, don't make things worse. They are what they are. Don't make them worse. It's just what they are. I think sometimes we learn that through this practice because at some point when the mind has really become habituated to settling down and to relaxing and to being composed and at ease, then we feel really a kind of uh, pleasure in peace. You know, the, the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, life is complex because it's always changing. We can't keep ourselves comfortable. Sometimes it's translated that truth as life is unsatisfactory, but compared to what? You know, I, I don't get the unsatisfactory as much as it's not, you can't fix it so that it's perfect. You fix it and it's lovely, you do the best you can, and then other things happen, and you have to fix, you have to respond. We are called upon in every moment of our life, really, to respond. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And we're always trying to respond in a way that will make us more comfortable. We are pleasure-seeking animals. That's not a mistake. All animals are looking to be pleasured and comfortable. And sometimes we choose wisely, and sometimes we choose not so wisely. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering is uh, the inability. Well, let's do it the other way. The cause of suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are. Often we wish things were different from how they were, are. And we take action and we try to fix it and remedy it. We do the best we can when it's something with ourselves, with something in our family, something in our community, the world. And we do things to try to make it better. And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. And the ability to accommodate is going to be what allows for the third noble truth when it can't be different from how it is. To be able to say, this wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I, what's happening. This is how it is. Let's see what happens next. It's the imperative of the mind. I can't be happy unless things are different. I can't be content. To discover I can be at ease when my, that ease is supported by a wisdom, things are the way they are because of myriad causes. And it's the causes that have accumulated since everything that make this moment. And sometimes I can change, I can be a piece of the cause of the future. Sometimes things get better. That's why we do social activism. That's why we take care of our bodies and our children and our kin. Because action really makes a difference. That's actually what the word karma means, is action. And I really like that the, uh, in the Eightfold Path of the Buddha, which is the fourth noble truth, in the Eightfold Path, there are three path parts that give instructions for developing morality and ethics. And then there are three parts for training the mind to respond to circumstances in a way that soothes the mind, composes it, wakes it up, clears away the sleep, um, dispels the hindrance energies. I was thinking yesterday, Sally was saying that, or somebody was saying, they hinder, they're called hindrances, kalashas are hindrances because they hinder clear seeing. I also like that sometimes they're called afflictive energies. 
because they afflict. All of them are uncomfortable. Lust and torpor and anger and negativity and uh, restlessness and fearfulness and agitation. I've just said three together. There really are five altogether. And doubt and lack of confidence. They're all uncomfortable, afflictive energies. And the peace that's possible is itself an antidote to the afflictive energies. What we're doing here is very much uh, a variety of techniques, living peacefully together, living, living morally together. We've all taken these vows to live together in a way that everyone can feel safe. And training the mind in this extraordinary discipline to be able to compose itself and say, wait a minute, let's really think what's go- let's really get what's going on now and let's bring warm kindness to the situation. So what I started to say is that the more when I said to when I said to Sumor, I am kinder, the more I see the possibilities of making terrible mistakes and choosing wrong, I was going to say choosing unwisely. In those in that rubric of the Eightfold Path, three morality trainings, three mind trainings, two wisdom trainings, wise understanding and wise motivation, wise attitude. Let's think for a minute about the three mind trainings because that's what we're very much doing here in this particularly contemplative way. One of them is wise concentration. And as Sally was teaching last night, this is really a concentration practice. And concentration itself produces the antidotes to the afflictive energies so we can see clearly. It's also a mindfulness practice at the same time. We need to be aware of what's happening so that we can respond with appropriate warm-hearted wishes. There's a way in which I see mindfulness and loving-kindness so inextricably linked together. You couldn't possibly be, I suppose you could be just saying phrases all day, but without any awareness of what's going on with them and no thought behind them or no being in touch with the feelings that come up, but that wouldn't really be that wouldn't really be metta practice. That would be just rote practice. And you couldn't really be mindful unless you had a warm heart about it. It would be too hard to be aware of all the things that are coming up unless we meet it with a kind of a warm and supportive, self-supportive, other-welcoming way. That third part that's in the mind training of wise effort is really so key to the whole of practice. I think it's really, in some ways, the unsung hero of the Eightfold Path. So people say, wise effort. And I say, well, make an effort wisely. It's really, the wise effort is a specific wise effort. It's not just trying hard. It's the effort in every moment of arising experience to discern is what uh, is what I'm, I'm I'm feeling or about to or prompted to do? Is that going to lead to wholesome mind states or unwholesome mind states? Something happens, and it's unpleasant. Oh, let's think. Somebody comes in and accidentally the door bangs, and it's startling and it's an unpleasant feeling, 
and there's a moment in the mind that startles, unpleasant, where it's just about to start to tell a story about there should be more signs about don't bang the door. If I were really right, if I were the manager, I'd put big signs, watch the door. People are already sitting, could run off that way. Or you could say, whoa, I just got startled. Relax, sweetheart. Take a breath in and out. And you could choose the path. Does that not lead to suffering? You could go in the dining room and think, oh, once again, broccoli. They don't think about anything but broccoli here. I don't like broccoli. I should write a note to the cooks and tell them about the broccoli here, that, that too much broccoli. Or you could say, oh, broccoli, I'm so disappointed. Relax, sweetheart, take a breath. There's lots of other things here to eat. May I be peaceful and happy. And look at this, everybody's enjoying the broccoli. That's great, let them enjoy the broccoli. <laughs> There's a way to rescue yourself from enmity and negativity. Every moment of the day can rescue yourself from going out on a limb of unhappiness. That's what wise effort is. It's from going out on a limb of unhappiness that you have to then talk yourself down from. And it's a very, it's a it's hugely, fundamentally, it's an act of kindness to, to diminish the suffering in ourselves. There's a line in the movie Kundun where the little boy actor who's playing the part of the seven or eight-year-old Dalai Lama reciting the Four Noble Truths uh, says uh, the second truth, the cause of suffering is desire and this which is a common way to write it. And his teachers say, no, no, no. And think it over. And he thinks for a minute and he says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And it's a beautiful movie in the film because you think to yourself, it's an amazing thing for an eight-year-old to be able to discern, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. It's an amazing thing for a 40-year-old to be able to know. <laughs> I am the cause of most of my suffering. We mostly think if only that person hadn't said, and if only they hadn't cooked broccoli, if they didn't bang the door, I'd be all right. You know that, but you know, we're not all right unless we're all right, really. And what we are trying to do here, in all the ways that we do it, is to be kind to ourselves and everybody else, so we have both the bliss of blamelessness, which is a lovely term from the Buddha. You don't have to feel bad about having had a uh, um, uh, what would be the right word? ignoble thought on somebody you have an ignoble thought on somebody whatever they walk too fast they this too much they that too much whatever it is and if you notice right after you have that ignoble thought you feel bad don't you it hurts to have an ignoble thought so then you could give yourself a bad time. Here I am, I'm practicing 35 years and I still have ignoble thoughts. Ah. You say, wow, look at that. The habits of the mind are so strong. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. You don't give yourself a bad time. Don't give anybody else a bad time in your mind. It's hard enough, this life. not a moment to lose about mortgaging the time of our life. I have a friend who um, some, lives somewhere here in the Bay Area, not here, uh, whose uh, mother in her late 80s just died. And she'd been quite sick for a while. And 
and my friend was very much involved in taking care of her at the end. And she told me the story of her mother had um, two brothers, and one brother who lived not so far from here, an hour's drive, with whom she had not spoken in 30 years because they had hurt each other's feelings 30 years ago and they didn't talk to each other for the whole 30 years. And the other brother, recognizing that my friend's mother was soon going to die, phoned the other brother and said, listen, your sister is dying, maybe it'd be good if you went to see her. So that brother came to see his sister. My friend is in the room as the brother came in and looked at his sister and said, I'm sorry, that was very stupid. And she said, yeah, I'm sorry too, it was stupid. And then she died the next day. And I find that so painful, because it is stupid. And people did that so long. That stupid sounds like a mean word. But it's ignorant is a better word. It's ignorant of the fact that to hold a grudge is to mortgage away your life and mortgage away the fullness of your heart. And say, well, one of the things when, over the years when I've begun to uh, teach uh, metta practice to groups, and I start, I, I really want to, I've got so many things I wanted to say, but I'm going to do the sutta together with you because, um, because I love it. Uh, and I think, well, I'll tell you what I think in a minute. But when I meet new groups, it's often happened over the years that I start to talk about metta practice or I read the metta sutta, we read it together. And people are often confounded or a little bit worried about one particular phrase. You know the phrase? What's the phrase? Like a mother. Oh, they love that phrase, the like a mother. What phrase worries them? Hmm? Omitting none. Omitting none is very worrisome. They say, you don't really mean that I am going to have to wish well to. And then they fill in the blank of anybody that is some public figure or somebody who once upon a time did something terrible to them. Because people really, we do have, alas... People sometimes do terrible things to other people. I once had a grudge for 10 years, maybe eight, (laughs) maybe nine, a long time, a long time. I had a grudge. Somebody wrote, it's like, I feel ridiculous. I haven't told this story in a while, but I feel a little ridiculous about it. I was younger. Not enough younger. And uh, it was just before Yom Kippur, which is a holiday in the year, where one tries to make sure that one has mended all all of the difficult connections in your life, and you ask for amends, just as Larry did that lovely forgiveness yesterday. Actually, some of the words are the same in in Jewish prayer books. If I have offended anyone in this lifetime or any other lifetime in word or thought or deed, may I be uh, forgiven and may I forgive them. So I was having a walk with a friend of mine in the week before Yom Kippur, an intimate of mine really, 
And she said, have you got anybody, Sylvia, that you haven't forgiven? So because she was an intimate of mine, I said, well, matter of fact, I said, this one person, and I told the story of this one particular person, not a a colleague, but not a colleague at Spirit Rock, but another person that I sometimes ran into. It's a complicated story, who had sent me a letter once and telling me what he thought about me, and it hurt my feelings a lot. It hurt my feelings so much I didn't talk to him for eight years. So that, uh, but we weren't, you know, it wasn't disruptive because we rarely met each other. But we met each other from time to time. He wrote a terrible, and when I thought about his letter, it just made me so mad. And anyway, I told my friend, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And then she didn't say anything about what I should do about it. She just said, don't you think if there's one person standing between you and loving all beings that you could get over it? <laughs> I thought too much. So, you know, it's, it's really good. I mean, that's like when you think about it, you think, why would I... The end of the Metta Sutta, there's a line that says, the pure-hearted one, by not clinging to fixed views, is not born into more suffering. That's a fixed view. I can never forgive him for saying that terrible thing. And I carried that thought around with me for a lot of years. I didn't meet him that all often, but enough in various... We worked in conjoint fields of action, so we crossed each other from time to time. And every time I'd be meeting him, I'd be thinking, how could he have said that to me? How could he have said that to me? And I I always behaved myself, hello, hello. I mean, I didn't make a scene about it, but we had been very good friends before that. And one day, after many, many years, I was on my way to wherever it was, and it suddenly occurred to me that he might likely be there, uh, which I always thought before, and I'd always thought, how could he have said that to me? and been all fired up. And I thought to myself, oh, he'll probably be there. How could he have said that about me? (laughs) And then I thought to myself, he said it about me because it's true. I thought, whoa. (laughs) So when I got there, I I said hello in a really nice way. And I didn't, I didn't like fall all over him or say what I had just discovered. I just say hello in a nice way. And he knew it. And he said hello in a nice way. And at the end of the evening, he said, you want to have lunch? And I said, sure. And we had lunch, and we had lunch, and we had lunch, and we had lunch. And for a while, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk for X many years. And then I said, well, we probably should talk about it. And I said, uh, when you sent me that letter, I felt really, I really was so upset. I couldn't figure out how you could have said that about me. And I said over the years, I thought, and I said, and finally, when I realized one night when I was about to meet you, I thought, why? How could you have said it about me? And I thought, he said it about me because it's true. And he said, no, it's not. <laughs> he said, I said that in a moment of uh, anger that I was about you about something. And he said, and I was so upset with myself because it's a pattern in my life. I get mad. I get upset. I. I speak peremptorily. I've severed many relationships by not thinking about what I'm going to say before I said, and I was so humiliated about doing that because we'd been such good friends. I couldn't bring myself to talk to you again. So all those years went by, 
and we got to be good friends. And we visited, we wore more clothes. I visited him on the day he died. We said, I love you. You know, it took, but, you know, I think back, and I think, people say, how come you didn't do, I mean, you, everybody's presumably in a place of having clear mind. Sometimes you don't have a clear mind. I w- it wouldn't happen to me again, because I would know that the inability to forgive is because I don't have a clear mind. And the inability to forgive is because at that moment I have forgotten that the biggest beneficiary of my forgiveness would be myself. Because as long as I don't forgive, and as long as I am not willing to make space for the other person's idea, they're right or wrong. I think actually he was right, a little bit. (laughs) Maybe not as truculently as he said it, but maybe. But still, he was right. And to be able to look at all of that, I, it wouldn't happen to me again because I, you know, I don't have any time to lose. But the thing is that we none of us have any time to lose because we none of us know how much time we have. And even if we have a lot of time, if your heart is mortgaged during that time, it doesn't count. When it's not possible really to say, "May all beings be peaceful and happy," and mean it, and have the pleasure of meaning that, if you mean all beings minus one or minus two. And people say, well, you're not going to ask me to wish well to, not actually even wish well, but not wish ill towards. May I be free of enmity and danger, is how the chant goes. May I be free of enmity and danger. I used to think that was, may I be free of enmity, meant nobody should have enmity towards me. May I be safe from everybody else's enmity. And I think it really means, may I be safe from my own enmity. Because that's really what clouds my heart. Other people's enmity is their enmity. May I be free of enmity and danger. So I really do mean it. I don't have to like people in order to not have ill will towards them. I can actually think this is a very dangerous person in the world. I hope this person is restrained. I hope this person doesn't continue to have power or doesn't get power. What can I do? In a, in a just way to make that come to pass. But I don't have to have ill will. It's, it's, um, when you, when you, it's just like when you have an ignoble thought and it hurts. When you have ill will, it really hurts. Pollutes the mind. Do you have your sutta in front of you? Well, well, we'll read it together. Let's read it together. Keep this. Keep have have this in mind. We're not going to do this tonight because I think we're not going to do this now. Nah, Often, uh, maybe we will do it. Think, 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 Sylvia. Uh, Often I do this with a group, and I say, "Let's read this together." And then, while we're reading it, I here's a prologue for this. When I first read this sutta, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I thought to myself, it's too glib. It just says, omitting none, open heart, love everybody, uh, no ill will, no, no, just a perfectly open, cherish all beings. 
And then I thought, this is really lovely, cherish all beings, but how am I going to do it? I said, this is, you know, this is an instruction that's like a Nike ad. It says, just do it. It doesn't say how to do it. But the thing is, it does say how to do it. It does say how to do it. And then I thought for a while, this particular sentence in this sutta is the clue to how to do it. And I was sure that that one sentence was the clue. And so I gave everybody a, a sutta, and I said, let's all read it together. And then I said, okay, what's the sentence that's the clue? And people would raise their hand, and they would say the sentence. And I'd say, why is that a clue? And they would explain why that's the clue to the whole thing. And they were right. No matter what sentence they picked out <laughs> in the whole thing. Then, seriously, seriously. So I decided I gave up on being attached to my idea that it was that one sentence that mattered. So we'll see what we do. We can make a decision based on what do you want to... Let's read it together. While you're reading, think to yourself, which is the one sentence? Okay. Let's go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, vented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and all ill will, or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this view. Are you sure which is the most important sentence? Do you think you know? What to do? What to do? I think... I think I'll tell you some ideas that I have about this. If this were the last day of the retreat, and ask Sally, what do you think? If this were the last day of the retreat, 
and we were about to talk to each other, I'd say get a partner and discuss your choice. Maybe we'll do it on the last day. All right, I'm not telling you. Let's do it on the last day. That's a good idea. Let me just tell you. It's a good idea because you know what I always do when I'm going to teach this is I, uh, my colleagues would tell you all day long today, I said, I think I should prepare for tonight. I think I should prepare for tonight. Any minute I'm going to prepare for tonight. I think I'll prepare for tonight. And in the 15 minutes before we came in, I took my sutta and I read through it and I thought of things I haven't thought yet about any one of these lines because the truth is I have another journal in which I have a page for a line and I'm writing every thought I ever had about that line in it. And it's very interesting. I always think new things. So I'll tell you some of the things that I thought today that were new. A a line gets you, catches you in a new way. First of all, I thought about today because Sally spoke last night about kindness and that we don't we talk about metta and karuna, uh, compassion. But I want to say that kindness is also compassion. That I think that they're both quite close enough. We say kindness and compassion. Maybe compassion is feeling with somebody else and kindness is what comes out as a result of that. But deliberate kindness, when we feel compassion, what would be the... Uh, the response. I was just thinking about a line from another Verghese, maybe it's the same Verghese book. It came up in my mind, so it must be appropriate to use. Uh, uh, Dr. Verghese is an emergency room doctor whose career now is not emergency room, it's medical ethics, Um, but certainly trained in emergency room. He's talking about training um, uh, emergency room personnel, and uh, he said one of the questions that is classically given to people in training, nurses and physicians and uh, paramedics in uh, emergency medicine, is it says when someone is uh, having a sudden emergency, paramedics go out to a sudden emergency, what is the first treatment offered to somebody in an emergency set person had a heart attack or a stroke or a, a crash or something. What is the first treatment given? Do you know what the answer is? Hmm? You're going to be all right. Reassurance. You put your hand on them and you say, you're going to be all right. It's really, it's okay to say you're going to be all right even if they're going to die, you know, it's all right to do it because they'll be all right that way too if they're so seriously, no, I mean that very seriously, if they're so seriously hurt that they might not be, but it'll be better for them if they can not be frantic, then the treatment will go better, you'll be able to do the best treatment, you're going to be all right. And I'm imagining 
remember if it says that. But you put your hand on somebody and you say, it's going to be all right. That's what you do on a child when it falls down, hurts itself, cries. Or not a child. When they cry, they're hurt. You say, it's going to be all right. And what you mean is not that this sad thing that happened didn't happen or that this sad thing will be completely healed, but that somehow human beings have the capacity to be all right up to the last minute. I'm always totally blown away by um, uh, news clips of uh, after the after that uh, terrible end of the Boston Marathon two years ago. Uh, two weeks later, uh, one of the one of the people, I think a woman, young woman, a woman in her early twenties who had lost a, her lower leg um, throughout the first baseball at the Red Sox game in Fenway Park. No, Fenway Park's in Chicago. What's in Fenway Park's in Boston. And the news broadcaster said, um, you know, how are you? And she said, I'm going to be fine. You know, people are amazing. And, you know, she will not be without feeling for the rest of her life. I wish this hadn't happened. I devoutly wish this wouldn't happen. She'd probably dream about that. But there's a capacity in human beings to be fine. And it's so amazing that people can pull themselves into that place. And I think that it helps the healing and it helps the trauma of the moment to say, you're going to be all right. I just thought this morning, uh, because I was going to talk about the Metta Sutta, uh, and in the in the sort of drafting on Sally's talk about kindness last night, I realized that if you Google the Metta Sutta or the Buddha's teaching of loving kindness, what will come uh, among the various um, uh, versions, uh, including the one that says this is what should be done for one. This is often called the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness. It's often called kindness, impartial kindness. Impartial kindness, like it's easy to be kind to who you know and who you like and who doesn't frighten you. But impartial kindness, that's really... And for the Buddha to say to his people that he's teaching, this is really the ultimate um, protection against something bad happening to you. Remember the other night when I had us say the benefits of metta and uh, that poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you? You know, I don't know. That's not. I think it's not meant to mean that. Uh, I have a friend, uh, a colleague who teaches loving kindness who said he was doing some walking meditation and a barking dog came running out of somebody's house and came barking menacingly towards him and he was doing metta towards the barking dog as strongly as he could, and the dog bit him. So, <laughs> so it's, it's not about anything, that, it's not about that kind of magic. It's, a, it's about the magic of being able to throw out the first pitch at Fenway Park and say, I'm gonna be all right, that magic. That there's something that 
in our, I keep doing this, but I think it's in our heart, that is, um, that is steadfast and unrockable, where you can just say, okay, this happened, but I'm okay. You know, there's a, in the, in the uh, images of Buddha, sometimes in the story of the Night of the Buddha's Enlightenment, there's actually an image that goes along that the Buddha uh, sits down with a resolve to not get up until he has fully understood the causes and the end of suffering, and that he is attacked by the forces of Mara, the forces that would disrupt clarity of seeing. And in the folktale about that, they, they actually see the armies of Mara uh, riding in on horses, on a horseback with spears and looking like uh, an ancient myth. And uh, the first forces that come are um, attackers with swords and arrows and uh, all the things that might frighten a person that was frightenable. But here he sits, unfrightenable, puts his hand on the floor and he says, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that. I'm not afraid. Then here come some beguiling images and uh, all kinds of the the kinds of things that beguile the mind. He's sitting perfectly. Uh, this is going to be like a ridiculous metaphor, uh, image to bring in the Buddha sitting. You're sitting here, and up through the window wafts the smell of the Italian lunch that's cooking down there. And you think, hmm, that smells like spaghetti sauce. I wonder if it's spaghetti sauce. I really don't like spaghetti sauce because since I'm non-gluten, I don't eat spaghetti. So what would they do? They'll probably have gluten-free spaghetti. But eh, that it's so possible for us to be sitting here in a very calm circumstance and have the mild mind be suddenly beguiled by spaghetti sauce, not to speak of in the real life, the mistakes that people might make when they become beguiled by some seduction some some thrill that they could have eating or whatever all the things that beguile our senses that we might be so beguiled that we might act unthoughtfully and unskillfully and create problems and be and anyway cloud the mind and in that image of the buddha he says I'm not afraid of your forces mara and the story that's told about how come he can manage to be not afraid of them is that he is so strongly radiating the forces of goodwill out from him that none of the arrows or spears that get thrown at him and none of the beguiling seductions that get offered to him can penetrate that shield of protection. So his heart is so protected by equanimity. And you know it's interesting because it says that from that because he can he can maintain his equanimity, he's free to then realize the cause and the end of suffering and and articulate the four noble truths. I think it's because he already knew the cause and the end of suffering, which is being beguiled and pulled off from that balance. And that I think he knew because he had already trained himself in. Uh, wisdom by all the trainings in the trainings of having a good heart. Remember the other night that um, Temple talked about patience and diligence and uh, renunciation 
we are doing renunciation here. Every time we say, I'm so tired of doing these phrases, I can't do another one. Yes, I can. All right, renouncing the sudden urge to forget it all and go for a walk. You say, no, I'm not renou- I'm renouncing that urge. I'm just sitting here for another half hour and doing another half hour of mind training. That's a big renunciation. I felt like doing that, but I'm not. Human beings are, I don't know, have other animals can renounce. Other animals can renounce if they know that there's a, uh, a reward at the end. You can get a dog to stay or to lie down or to do things because they're going to get a little reward at the end. They're not doing it to please you. They're doing it because it comes out a reward at the end. We are doing this because we really believe that the reward at the end is a mind that's not ruffled and beguiled and bewildered and bewitched and that's able to maintain its clarity. I didn't even get off the title. How was I going to do the whole thing? The Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness. You know what I thought for a new... Well, it's all right. I'm going to give you this for homework until the last day. I'm not going to do which was the most important line. And I'm going to tell you the only one that I thought about in a new way today. It's just, it was a new thought for me. Um, Those born and to be born... I haven't ever just spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I thought about it today because I just got back from that uh, celebration of the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday. And uh, there were several speakers on one of the panels who talked about the seriousness of climate change. They talked about the seriousness of war in the world and the seriousness of pollution. But really the very, very acute seriousness of of climate change and how these next five years are really the, the, the pivotal times of can the planet be saved. Um, and he said some, at one point, one of them said, in 35 years, it's already going to be, given even whatever we do now, in 35 years, the landscape is going to be very, very much different talked about how many meters higher the San Francisco airport's going to be underwater, that the Oakland airport's going to be underwater, that most major airports that are on seacoasts, people, the, the landings come in over water. What the storms are going to be like in the whole world. And I thought, 35 years from now, and I won't be here 35 years from now, but I thought about uh, suddenly, my 15-year-old granddaughter, who's my youngest granddaughter, will be 50 in 35 years. So maybe she'll have children. Maybe she'll have grandchildren. Everybody will have grandchildren, if not my grandchildren having grandchildren. And suddenly, because I have a grandchild who might have a grandchild in 50 years. And other people all making grandchildren who will be around having grandchildren in 50 years. It was because, you know, when, when Sally said that the neutral person is the conduit on the whole rest of the world. I was thinking the person I know is the conduit, that this 15-year-old is the conduit of all the 15-year-olds who 35 years from now will be in the prime of their lives with children and with grandchildren. And I suddenly was able to see past honor and onto all those children. And I suddenly thought, whoa, that's what that line means. And I thought about it for a while. Really, it's 
And every time I read this, I see each line slightly differently or in a new way. I was thinking for a while, since I just said I'm going to offer this to you for homework. The homework is this. You chant it. We chant it every night, don't we? So when we chant it, think about it. And you can use it for a reflection. You know, uh, at some point during the day, or when you reflect it, think about what does this mean? Which one is the clue? There's no wrong answer. Every line is the clue. Or at least I think so. I want to change one line for you because I think it'll make it easier. The next to the last line saying, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires. I think it's, uh, you know, I don't know what the Pali is, but I want to say being freed from the imperative of sense desires because I think that makes it a little clearer because we'll still get hungry. We'll still feel like eating. We'll feel like getting up and walking around, which is a sense desire and moving our bodies. So I think it means that the lusts that we have will not be um, imperatives in the mind. I think it's all about not having imperatives in the mind. So just if you see that sentence, I don't know that for sure, and I didn't check it with my friends who are poly scholars, and maybe it says free from sense desires and think of particular ones, but I don't know. You also might think about this. I feel like I'm writing a manual for studying the Metta Sutta. Uh, There's one line at the end where it says whether standing or sitting, seated or walking, standing or lying down, which is, by the way, all the positions you can ever be in. There isn't another one other than kneeling or leaning. So it uh, it really means all the time. But it's a nice phrase and it's nice poetry. Um, one should sustain this recollection. So I'd like to ask you to think about which recollection. It says one should sustain this recollection, but it's just giving you a whole sutta full of lines of recollections. So which recollection am I supposed to sustain? I think I know. You think you know. Is that pleasant for you to think about till... When will we do it? Thursday in the afternoon, maybe? Friday morning? But we will do it sometime, not promising into the air. Would you like to do it? All those people who feel like doing it, raise their hand. All those people who don't feel like doing it, do not raise your hand. another example of renunciation. You don't have to feel like it. Just do it. (laughs) 
So when I travel from place to place, if I I don't travel so much to teach anymore, but when I do, I don't I don't take books with me and uh, I don't take talks with me. I make them up, but I take the metta sutta with me wherever I go. I always have a copy in my purse or somewhere with me, because I think it says everything. And you know what else? I think it says the whole of Buddhist practice, and that one of the things that's true of it is that the first thirteen lines. I think it's 13, 12 or 13, are instructions for morality training. And the middle section of it are are instructions for mind training. And the last five or six lines of it are instructions for wisdom training, sila samadhi panya training. So if we didn't have any textbooks for Buddhism, it becomes a one-page textbook for what the Buddha taught. So thank you very much. It's been a big pleasure. I find that if I teach it, it always makes me in a happy mood. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.